Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we have Haven Pelligan from The Pontificator, and we're going to be jousting a little bit on the subject of the angry political debate that Americans now are starting to see as a massive problem, both in society and in their ability to get things done on a personal level. Haven, thanks again for coming on board. What have you seen in your readings in the last couple of weeks that sort of fleshes out a little bit about this divide? Well, there's a very interesting story that was written by Susan Page in USA Today, and it was in early December of this year. And it is discussing some polling that was done showing that people are getting fed up with partisanship and getting fed up with the inability to solve anything. To me, a pretty dedicated centrist. I think this is long overdue, and I'm really happy to see that lots of people seem to be agreeing that the intractability of problems is maybe a whole lot less intractable than we are being told by those who are running for office. One of the things that I like nowadays is that being a centrist, and I think we both would agree that we're in that camp, being a centrist is being the new radical these days. <laughs> Someone once said being intelligent is being able to house opposing thoughts within the same brain and be able to have a discussion about that. It seems like this is purely a licking one's finger and trying to test the wind with it, but the polling feels exactly like what you're saying, where people are just generally fatigued with the rancor out there. And the part that scares me, though, is that the avenue to have this sort of debate seems to be weakened. It's almost like a muscle that hasn't been exercised. And people go back into their corners and come out swinging. And the method of discourse has just gotten to the type of tactic where if it's not maximum violence now, you're not going to be able to get your point across. And even if you are able to get your point across to stay away from the concept of accepting another point of view as reasonable, that's something that we seem to have lost. Did the article talk about that at all? Subliminally, it certainly does. It deals with the idea that people are fed up with either or, it's got to be this way or that way. And yet what the article does not do is point out that there is a strong financial motivation to choose the more divisive approach. You're not going to raise much money for political campaigns by saying we're going to put together a group of people who represent a variety of different perspectives and they're going to come up with a solution and it's going to be a compromise and there's going to be a little of this and a little of that and hopefully it will be the most intelligent that we can do and, and that's the way we're going to do it. Nobody is too interested in that. They are interested in wrestling on TV. They're interesting in people getting taken down, getting thrown to the mat, that somebody schooled somebody else and my team won and all those sorts of things, which is actually a different thing than solving a problem. Right. Total agreement on that front where the fact of the matter is, is that solving a problem, useful debate 
unfortunately doesn't equal ratings. And I feel like in the last 10 years, you know, certainly social media has been a major driver, especially among younger people, where likes and hits and friends and numbers and so on is the metric of self-esteem and the metric in many ways of social success. You may not be able to solve a lot of problems that way, but by being extremely partisan or out there, that does lead to that type of success, if we can call it that in quotation marks, but it doesn't solve anything. And I worry about that. But at the same time, I think there's that fatigue that we were discussing and that the polling seems to indicate gives it a little bit of a sign of hope that there may be some appetite for that within a larger subset of people. It would be great. Years ago, I learned something that basically derives from drawing a bell curve on a piece of paper. And, you know, you have big, long tails and then the bell curve goes up and it gets very tall and then it goes back down and you have a big, long tail on the other side. And of course, most people fall under the tall part of the bell curve. OK, and that's what we had when we had three television stations. Everybody catered to that big mass of people that were kind of in the middle. But somebody came up with the idea of long tail marketing. And that is that there also exist a very large number of people who are out at the extremes of the bell curve. They can be catered to, they can be segmented, and you can build quite a nice business on that. And what you see when you look at cable news, which is probably gets more attention than it deserves since it's drawing maybe one or two, you know, you take just to pick two examples, take Fox or MSNBC or CNN, each of them will draw three or four million people. I mean, that's 1% of the country. Do they get more than 1% of the attention? Well, they certainly do. But does it really tell you what the people in the middle of the bell curve are thinking? Probably not. Well, there was a great stat in here that talked about nearly three in four people saw more agreement among the American people than the news media and political leaders portray. And that was stunning to me. I would have thought it would have been maybe not below 50 percent, but certainly lower than 75 percent. And I look at that and say, geez, if there's this zeitgeist out there that's not being addressed, but the media and political leaders are really catering to the edges as much as they are isn't there a big gulf for some media savvy group to drive a bus through? And can that be something that's interesting, either from a business perspective or whatever other metrics connote media success? I could only wish that it would happen more quickly because the political campaigns have to be driven by fundraising. If you can't pay your staff, you're out. Kamala Harris basically ran out of money and she dropped out of the race. Now, it's a very interesting thing, and someone mentioned this to me the other day and hadn't thought about it. And the progress, and I'm not picking on the Democrats, it's just that they happen to be having a primary this year and the Republicans aren't. But it could be either party, and I don't mean to be rude about the Democrats, but they are successively limiting the numbers of people who appear in a debate. And as they should. I mean, it's like a tournament. And, you know, as you advance round by round, there are fewer competitors who can be the winner and that that should happen. That's exactly what should happen. But one of the measuring sticks is how much money have you raised? And I never thought until someone mentioned it to me that that's a very odd statistic. 
What that does is talk about how much support are you able to provide for political operatives, political parties, and the business of politics. It isn't something that should tell you whether you're popular or not, or whether you'd be a good president or not. It's entirely for self-preservation. And if you want to be noticed, you have to be extreme. And I guess in my heart of hearts, I don't really think that some of the candidates who are proposing Medicare for all or free college or whatever are doing it for any reason other than to get attention. If there was a primary going on on the other side, I'm sure that there would be absolutely similar issues and people would be precisely motivated in the same way. And they would, in essence, behave, in my view, just as unproductively, but with different issues. Two quick points on that. First one, the money component, I view that as much as a proxy of support as much as a necessity to get elected, although I say that and I'm about to correct myself because you absolutely need the money to get collected. But we see more and more candidates who are just unbelievably outspent, Trump included, who garner all sorts of unbelievable results. And I put unbelievable in quotes as well, because right up until through 2 p.m. on election day, I was convinced Hillary Clinton was going to win and was completely wrong about that. But the economics of the political system have completely shifted. And so I look at that and say, geez, on the one hand, you need the money. You need to be able to build organizations. You need to you need to spend to get the word out. You need to brand and somehow rise above it all very quickly. And for those people that don't bring that into a particular environment, they're always going to be hamstrung on that front, Kamala Harris being a, a good example of that. I look at that and say, geez, it's an unfortunate component. But the fact of the matter is, is that in politics, 95% of the job probably higher is fundraising, if not for yourself, then for somebody else. Sure. If you ask a person who has any responsibility for hiring, likely you do. I'm past that point in my life. But if you say, how would you go about hiring a person to do an important job? And they will talk to you about, well, how do you find the candidates and what sorts of questions do you ask them and how do you test them and try to determine what they can do? It's very interesting then to say, do you think if you were hiring someone for an important job that you would use the political primary process to do that? And I mean, the answer is absolute ridicule. Nobody would have a job on offer that had attributes A through Z and make a determination as to who should get that job by measuring things that they would never do. What we do on the campaign trail hasn't anything to do with how would you respond to a crisis? How would you do a negotiation? How would you treat foreign leaders? How would you do any of the things that are actually the job, in many cases, it's almost the opposite, is going to get you the popularity to get the votes, which is what you seem to need to do. But we don't have any idea who's going to actually be able to do the job of being president or senator well after we're done with the campaign. At least I don't think so. And that's one of the crazy distortions of the system is that, you know, you elect people and the popularity contest versus the competence component of the process. It just seems to be at odds. 
to go back to what was going to be my second point, which is it feels like, and you know, the polling would seem to indicate that there's some agreement that one of the statistics says that 69% of Americans deal with disagreements in mostly a destructive way. Most people agree, 75% agree that it's gotten worse over the past decade. And not many people, 22%, thought that things would get better in the next decade. Here I am, a grizzled 46-year-old, shaking my fist at social media and elsewhere, saying, I look at friends who are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and other components where I see rational people who lose their minds online. And I can't help but think over the last 10 plus years, let's say 15, because I think some of the components of 2008 spill over to this too with the financial crisis. But the idea that discourse can happen over a message board and that there's lower levels of accountability in terms of having a discussion and being careful with words and being thoughtful that contributes to this. I hate to sort of glom onto those statistics and agree with all of them, but I don't see that changing very quickly until there is a real come to Jesus moment where people really think twice before posting. And I unfortunately, I think that's bled into social, just general social interaction. One final component to that is that I got to be with Philip Howard this week at a conference and we talked for a few minutes and, and he came up with a concept about how this country has really devolved a little bit because the concepts of mindless compliance have really permeated almost everything and that it has taken away the individual's ability to think for themselves and to actually be responsible for their own thoughts. That resonated with me. Philip Howard is, in my view, one of the really significant contributors to trying to actually get to solving problems rather than just having them and running on them. I'm a huge Philip Howard fan, and you know I'm glad that you had an opportunity to meet him. He's, I think he's a terrific guy. And he began with the idea that we make all these rules that government officials have to comply with, particularly env environmental rules, permitting rules, those sorts of things. And nobody is given the discretion to say, okay, you complied, you did what you were supposed to do, we're done. Nobody has that choice. The rule says that there have to be this many appeals and this many other things. And so it sort of never ends and it becomes much more expensive and it isn't productive. And he taught there is actually a different approach to rulemaking that is very interesting, and that is what's the outcome? In England, if you're a bank regulator, you go to a bank and say, this is where we'd like you to be. Please take the steps that you think are necessary, and we'll see you in six months and see whether you got there. And then the bank can say, okay, well, we're supposed to achieve this kind of a standard, and this is what we're going to do, and let's see if it works, and so forth. And six months later, the guy comes back to you and says, how you doing? And you say, well, I think we're doing okay. And he says, well, that's good. This is good. Here's what I learned from another person. They tried this, and it worked pretty well. And do you want to try that too? And the guy says, sure, absolutely. So off you go, and another six months later, and they end up with better results. But the results, because they are discretionary, aren't really subject to lawsuits. And so you can't say you failed to comply with this particular subset of this section or whatever. You were simply 
working with a person who had discretion to say, yeah, you look like you're getting there or no, you're not doing well enough. He favors that sort of outcomes-based regulatory approach rather than a rules-based. The extension of that that I thought was interesting in his talk was the notion that this culture of compliance is combined with social media and different components of communication and sort of economic inequality and elsewhere. But this culture of compliance has really fostered anger not only amongst those who have to comply, but amongst the regulators as well. And that can, regulating can take all sorts of forms. You could be working in HR, you could be in charge of risk management, you could be, you know, one of the people who has to deal with constituents at a board or what have you. But all of that has created this Gattaca type of experience where people feel adrift toward the future where they have less and less control, not only over their actions, but over their thoughts as well. And that that's part of what's bleeding into the political discourse. He's moved along further then. Yeah, I think I understand what you're describing. And it certainly, if it fosters a sort of, all I get to do is to do what I'm told, that's not a happy place. No. Not at all. And I think, you know, as we go back a little bit to the political discourse component here, the statistics kind of bear that out. One thing that I looked at some of the polling from the article that is interesting is people who supported different suggestions to improve things, because it's very easy for us to get cynical and grouchy. <laughs> but the idea of teaching kids to resolve their conflicts more constructively, which is sort of like supporting mom and apple pie and baseball, 85% of people agreed with that. 77% of people talked about teaching adults to do the same thing, which again, I think is pretty easier. But as we get into some of the more interesting ones to me, making it easier for third party and independent candidates to run for office, 65%. I saw that statistic and I said, you know what, that's a concept that is going to be difficult without a lot of structural change to achieve, but it may be time, maybe something where the political parties are just not doing what we need them to do in order to help drive the country forward. You're certainly hitting a hot button for me. I couldn't agree more. The political parties are businesses and people don't want to think that. There are many people who believe that the political parties are actually a part of the constitution, which it is the opposite. The constitution, those who wrote the constitution didn't want to have political parties at all. And so they're assuredly not part of the structure of governance other than they have become that and they would like to remain that because it's a pretty good business. And so when you try to get in the way and you want to say there was a wonderful effort made to have a third party and it was called Americans Elect and the idea was pretty straightforward. You would say you, Frazier, or me, we could set ourselves up on Americans elect and we could try to get enough people to support us. And we would go through various stages of elimination. And if thousands of people said, I want to run for president and they put themselves forward, you would have increasing levels of support to move on to the next round. And finally, at the end of the day, you, you'd have two or three people who were in the final round and so forth. The key was that the person who created it had secured ballot lines in every state. And that was extremely expensive. He spent $20 million on it. And uh, he had secured the ballot lines. What he had not secured 
was a commitment on the part of the debate commission to allow the Americans elect candidate to participate in the debate. And that was the end of it. That was absolutely the end of it. And the duopoly protects itself. That's what duopolies do. And, you know, if you have two cable companies, they'll divide up the territory or they'll get franchises or whatever so that they can keep the prices high. But duopolies don't care about what the service looks like. They don't care about what the price is. They just want to keep their share. And the Republicans and Democrats are absolutely a duopoly. No question about that. You know, you look at the Ross Perot candidacy back in back with the Bush v. Clinton. You go back to John Anderson and that's back in the early 80s and on up to even some of the Jill Steins and others uh, in the recent election with Trump. The parties do a good job of trying to assimilate the good ideas that third parties come up with. And when they do that haphazardly or in a faulty manner, you get a bit of a distortion of what all the polling seems to indicate should happen, which would witness certainly Clinton able to thread the needle in his election and then Trump able to uh, thread the needle with his election in many ways. And sometimes these parties don't know what's good for their own good. <laughs> well, it's hard to imagine a better third party candidate than Michael Bloomberg. He's been a Republican, an independent and a Democrat. And my guess is, I mean, I have every sense that he is extremely well advised and informed about how to run a presidential campaign. And I think he stayed out in 2016 because he thought that if he had gotten in, it would have tanked Hillary Clinton and he thought Trump was worse. So he stayed out in that one. And now he's running as a Democrat. I don't know what his prospects will be. He's not going to get to debate because he's not raising any money. Maybe he's just taken the tact. And I, I agree. He's well advised and he knows what he's doing. And he's found, let's call it a path to the math that will get him somewhere. Now, he probably needs 100 different things to go right for him. Not unlike when he won the mayoral election. That needed 10,000 things to go right for him, and he ended up paying $90 per vote or something along those lines. But no, no question about it. He's got enough money to, in a sense, buy the election is one way to put it. But another one is to circumvent the structures in place that allow for some modicum of party control over the candidate that's put out. It's interesting to see, too. I mean, I, I look back when Trump got elected and see he wiped away whatever it was, 16 different Republican candidates in the primary field and then took on a well-funded and extremely qualified candidate at the national stage. Uh, it's fascinating. The best laid plans sometimes don't work. And it's a crazy scenario in order to uh, try to predict these things sometimes. To predict them. And if it's shown to work, I can't fault a political strategist if he says, well, that worked the last time. Let's try it again. I can't say, please don't learn anything. You just can't be there. If that's what works, it ought to be done. The problem is we don't really like what's being done. We don't like the idea, or a lot of people don't like the idea, that dealings with other countries' leaders is uh, sort of as embarrassing as it is. And yet it is politically sensible 
to go and be rude to people at a NATO conference. And it's politically sensible, but it's like fingernails on blackboards, if anybody still knows what a blackboard is. <laughs> so that and pencil sharpeners, the vestige of a bygone era. Quick question. we got to sign off pretty shortly because we're running up on time here. You know, as we sort of deal with the rancor that people have with each other and their ability to have debate over important things, I look at things like the climate change scenario. I look at things like various political components and fake news, and it really boils down to an inability to agree on a set of facts and an ability to house nuance within somebody's decision-making and their critical thinking. Where do you think we go from here to try to help out with that, where we've got so much data or potential data and not a lot of wisdom around it? Again, I'm hoping that you know we look and say the poles of thought, you know, sort of right or left or angry or calm, that there's enough room for 75% of the people to sort of glom on and, and listen to reasonable people. How do we do that? I spend a lot of time trying to figure things out and I'm probably okay at it. I don't think I'm the best figure or router in the whole world, but I'm interested enough to devote time to it. And I am overwhelmed. How can I possibly know some field, whether it's cybersecurity or climate change or whether we should do quantitative easing, those are really hard problems. And what we're doing to a person like you or a person like me or anybody who favors the idea of critical thinking and making the right decision is to say, you have to be good at all of those things. Well, there's nobody on earth who's good at all of those things. I'd be happy to be good at one. <laughs> oh, one, yeah, one would be great. I'd happy to be a good listener somebody who could ask a, a decent question from time to time. There are things that require trust. And if the idea of trust is not part of the equation anymore, then it is very difficult to see how anything gets solved because somebody has an interest in one side of a problem. You know, what could we do? Would climate change be ameliorated to any degree by the use of nuclear power? Well, Intuitively, it seems to me that it would, but as far as do I know enough to put my hand over the burner on a stove and say, yeah, I'm absolutely right? No, of course I don't know enough. And now where do I find it out? That would be really seemingly an important thing to know. I thought that one of the things that if you could have honest science, I thought that that would be a good thing. I was, I was wrong about that because science is never proven. It's always subject to reinterpretation, which is just what the scientific method is supposed to be. So what I should have said, what I should have aspired to was the idea of honest publicity about science and being clear about what you do and don't know. What are you speculating? What is a theory? What's generally accepted and, and so forth. But I think it's way too much for most people and not really susceptible for a democracy. Most people aren't going to devote the attention of these podcast listeners today to figuring out what the right answer is. Well, a thorny problem to solve. We're not going to be able to do it on this podcast, but thanks again, Haven, for coming on. Thank you, Fraser. Always a pleasure.
You've been listening to the Wealth Actually podcast with Fraser Rice, and we've had Haven Pell, who's on the Pundificator and writes on his blog. We've been trying to solve a few of the problems related to finding hidden common ground amongst people today and solving problems. Thanks again, and talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.